Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And this episode, we are looking at food rescue. And to help us with that, we are joined by Madison McGuire, who is the head of operations for Ontario with Second Harvest. Second Harvest is Canada's largest food rescue charity. So Madison, thank you so much for talking to us today. How's your day going so far? Yes, thank you for having me. And uh, it's, it's going pretty well so far. Wonderful. I wonder if we could maybe just start by getting you to tell us a little bit about what Second Harvest is and sort of what it aims to achieve. Absolutely. So you kind of said in your intro there that we are Canada's largest food rescue organization, and we do a lot of things as it relates to food waste, but we kind of operate two main programs. Uh, We've been around for over 30 years, actually, and we have a warehouse in Toronto uh, and a fleet of trucks. And what we do is we rescue food all along the supply chain. And then we deliver that once a week to a range of social service organizations. Uh, We currently serve 268 of those. uh, And it could range from shelters to after school programs to newcomer residences. And then about three years ago, we also started an online platform, uh, which is what I mainly work on, called the Second Harvest Food Rescue App, which is now available across Canada. And it connects uh, local food businesses that have surplus food along the supply chain with a local charity or nonprofit. And in that case, the charity or nonprofit would pick up that surplus food and then use it in their food program. So that's the kind of uh, quick and dirty of of us. (laughs) Yeah. So in places outside of Toronto, you you know, your trucks aren't going out, but the app's connecting people directly. Uh, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, kind of impetus for for creating the platform was kind of twofold. It was that we would often have a businesses reach out to us to say, I have surplus food, you know, maybe 30 pounds. Uh, could you come and pick it up? And for a number of reasons, cost and environmentally, that doesn't really make sense to send a truck, but that's still good surplus food that a local organization could use. And then there's also just parts of Canada where there isn't really a food rescue operation happening, or there is a or local organization, but they just kind of need to get that intro to the to the business, especially kind of corporate chains. And so that's kind of where the app acts as the kind of in between uh, to facilitate that. That's super cool. I'm curious to know how you got involved with Second Harvest. Sure. Yeah. So I did my master's at uh, York in environmental studies. And I actually focused my research on food waste and specifically looking at restaurants and, you know, what is happening there? What are some kind of some of the reasons that food waste happens and what are some of the potential solutions? And while I was doing that, I I did get connected to Second Harvest and I did a few kind of research projects for them while I was in my master's. And then when I graduated, I was lucky enough to uh, land a position there and I've done a bit of everything at Second Harvest and then most recently now working on this this online platform, uh, focusing on helping charities and nonprofits uh, in Ontario use use our online platform and uh, use our direct delivery program. I have a, a follow up question to that. What drew you to food waste in your studies originally and environmentalism to begin with? Sure. So when I, I did my undergrad at McGill and, and sort of by the end of that time, I had become really interested in in environmental issues. And then I've worked all through pretty much high school to through my master's in the service sector uh, as a waitress. And when I was doing my master's at, at York, the environmental studies program is really open. You can focus on pretty much any topic as it relates to the environment. And as we know, 
everything is sort of intersectional and pretty much everything relates to, you know, climate change and the issues we're facing. So my supervisor actually kind of prompted me by saying, you know, I had noticed how much food waste there were in restaurants and kind of the unique challenges they're facing and, and just how can they kind of think about reducing that and that kind of, you know, the real life experience sort of inspired that, that research. I'm curious about, um, so you had mentioned that Second Harvest has been around for, for quite a while. Um, do, you, do you sort of know a little bit more about how it got started um, and sort of like what it looked like in the early days? Because it's a huge organization now, but uh, I assume it started smaller. Absolutely. It, it started with, you know, a couple of women really driving around in, in the hatchback, picking up food from a few grocery stores and then, you know, dropping that at, at local places. And then uh, it's just grown ever since. And definitely in the last five years or so, we've had kind of this exponential growth, mainly around setting ourselves as kind of the experts in the space and, and doing research around food waste and training and education. And then also launching this, this online platform about three years ago now. We started in, in Ontario, uh, piloting in, in Toronto, as well as three other cities, and then the start of the pandemic, actually, we took what was a several year growth plan across Canada and accelerated it in about two months uh, to respond to some of the supply chain challenges that came up uh, during the pandemic and are still continuing. Wow. <laughs> that must have been a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, many tired team members, but a lot of great work accomplished. So that was at least a good thing there. Yeah, I'm also curious if you could tell us a little bit more. I feel like people experience the supply chain issues a little bit at the grocery stores, but I'm curious to hear more about how that sort of affected Second Harvest and the work that it did and also sort of the work of organizations that you're connecting to. Absolutely. So one of the biggest challenges at the beginning of the pandemic is that the whole what we call HRI sector closed down, which is hotels, restaurants and institutions. And that sector orders a lot of food from many distributors across Canada. And so it meant that all that food that was destined to go to them suddenly didn't have a home, you know, and, and some of it is perishable, whether it's frozen or fresh. And so there's sort of this, you know, ticking clock on needing to move that product. So one of the things that we did is we made this kind of charitable and a food business kind of alliance, if you will, or committee at the beginning to try to bring together all the big players and sort of try to organize that. And the other kind of complicated piece to that is that, you know, we rescue food all along the supply chain, which we, you know, is typically defined as farm all the way to table, if you will. So going along that supply chain, you're dealing with uh, different businesses that have kind of different size of products. So the challenge in COVID when that restaurant sector closed down is that they order a lot of bulk product. Uh, so for example, if you can think of that massive mayo carton that you sometimes see in restaurants, uh, because they're able to do that because they're serving high volumes. Uh, and that's what economically often makes sense for them when they're ordering. But that's a hard product to sometimes move because we're working with such a range of charities and nonprofits so if they're operating a meal program where they're making food in a kitchen, for example, then they could possibly use some of that product. But if you're offering like a hamper or uh, snacks and different things, that's obviously not going to be a use of use to you. And the other challenge for the charity and nonprofit sector is always storage and in particular cold storage. So the ability to be able to store products that are fresh or frozen. So it's it's like a big puzzle, really. 
that we're kind of involved in trying to figure out. Uh, and that's where we make these kind of partnerships across the country where we are connected to sort of all of the big hubs that exist in the different provinces. So the organizations that have larger capacity and can hopefully then move the food uh, within their network. And the other issue is just that you can't give all of one product to one agency. So even with our program in Toronto, where we're delivering, you know, once a week, we try to have a range of the kind of three main perishable categories. So uh, protein, dairy, and produce, but you can't show up with the truck and the whole truck just be milk. And then for three weeks in a row, you bring milk because the charity at our profit, while they would love to have the milk, they can't only serve that in whatever program. And they don't have the space to take tons of milk right now and keep it, nor does milk last forever. Although it can obviously, if stored properly, be used past the best before, but still we want to have that. We want to try to be focusing on that variety as well as not inundating anyone with one product. So that's where that network really comes to be so important is so that you can share the, that product if you get some influx of a certain thing. Right, right, for sure. I'm wondering if um, if we can sort of step back a bit and can you tell us what food rescue means sort of to you? <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and, and to be honest, it's a topic that I think is sometimes confusing to the public in the sense that I think they think of food waste as one thing. And then they think of where people might go to access food as typically food banks. And we're, we ourselves are not a food bank and we don't actually serve the public in any way. We just redistribute that food to organizations that can. And for us, food rescue means rescuing what we call surplus food along the supply chain. So one of the key things is that there's so much food along the supply chain that is never getting to the audience that it's attending to. So I think for the public, they often think of the food that you had in your fridge and went bad and you threw out, which is obviously a very key part of the food waste issue and something that we also focus on when it comes to kind of public education. But there's also a ton of food that never made it to the grocery store or made it to the grocery store and didn't get sold. And all of that is perfectly okay food. It's just something's happened in the supply chain where it's not getting to its intended audience. And it has all of those resources built into it. So, you know, when the food's in the grocery store, we've already, you know, grown it or packaged it or trap sent it from one place to another, used all the water to do that, all the transport. And so that's the kind of food that we're most focused on is what we call avoidable food waste, which is things that should have been consumed by somebody, but for a variety of reasons is not. Yeah, for sure. And I think I read in one of your reports somewhere that 58% of all food is is lost or wasted, but 32% of that could be rescued. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We did a report uh, a couple of years ago now that's called The Avoidable Crisis of Food Waste. And it is, I'll do a little plug, it is on our website at secondharvest.ca. And you can download the roadmap, which is kind of the shorter version that's accessible for everyone anytime you'd like. And in that report, we were looking at we were really focused on pre-consumer, if you will. So not the food waste happening in the home, but what's happening further along the supply chain. And there really actually hadn't been primary research done on this topic in Canada, if you can believe that. A lot of the times when people were talking about food waste in Canada, they were referencing studies that were done in the US or in, in the UK. And so from that study, we found exactly almost 60% of food that's produced in Canada is lost and wasted annually. and 
the distinction there is that there's always going to be some part of, there's always going to be a certain amount of food waste that you can't recover, if you will. Although sometimes there are secondary markets of things people can do with, say, bones or other things. But of that 60, 32% is what we call avoidable and edible food waste. And that's where us as an organization are most focused on. How can we make sure that food is actually going to an organization that can use it and, and feed people in, in some capacity? Yeah. What are, what are some of the big reasons that food, that avoidable food waste happens? There's a kind of combination of different things. There's the fact that what we found in our research is that there were quite a few businesses that don't measure their food waste. Uh, I think people often think that everybody would be, but often that's not an explicit measurement that they're making. And so you can't really know how bad a problem is if you aren't, aren't measuring it. I think also we're still always doing this education piece around the fact that food, surplus food can be donated. So every province in Canada has a essentially safe food donation act, which means that if businesses are donating the food in good faith, they are not held liable for those donations. And that's a big education piece, as well as what best before dates really mean and when you can donate food for that. And then there's also just, it's a very complex food system in Canada that you know, supply chain issues can cause problems, as we've seen over the past two years. But also, we expect a certain abundance in a lot of places, such as the grocery store. So we all expect that any time of the day, there will be all the shelves filled of all the products we would need. And in order to do that, you have to put then more than is going to be sold on those shelves. Uh, and then eventually, depending on how perishable the product is, it's it's not going to be able to be bought in time before it has to be be tossed out. So I think this kind of sense of having everything available to us in full has kind of created a supply chain where there's, you know, it's not exactly this is how much everyone's ordered. It's fill this and then see how much people buy and then what they don't, you know, gets thrown out. And we're there to hopefully try to, for the meantime, for now, at least as this issue is so, you know, pressing in particularly in light of everything going on with climate change, we're there to hopefully try to avoid that food going at worst into the landfill, which unfortunately it, it often is. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about sort of the environmental side. Um, how does food waste impact the environment? Absolutely. I, I know that people often quote this stat that if you know food waste was a country, it'd be the third largest in the world or something. But it, it is incredibly in, impactful uh, based on the methane that food produces if it if it ends up in landfill. And the bigger picture that we're always trying to you know help people understand is 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 the resources that go into your food that's also so impactful. So you know all as I mentioned before, all the water, uh, the transport, and everything else. And one of the things that we do in our our online platform is that when uh, food businesses donate surplus food, and it's rescued by a local charity or nonprofit, on both of theirs, the, the business and the charity, it's homepage, if you will, or dashboard, as we call it. As soon as those rescues are confirmed, so meaning the charity said, yep, I went and I got it, it starts to calculate some metrics for them. It calculates, you know, how many meals, equivalent meals you've provided to the community, how many dollars, you know, you've saved essentially by that not going into the landfill or wherever else. And then it, we also have a greenhouse gas calculator 
that's built into the app. So it calculates how many greenhouse gases you've avoided by rescuing that food. And it is done by category, which is important because the three main perishable categories, produce, dairy, and protein, have higher GHG impacts than if than if it was other categories. So, you know, if you're able to rescue those products, as well as they're also nutrient dense, so incredibly helpful to the charities and nonprofits and expensive. So if those can be rescued, it's kind of a win-win-win uh, for everyone involved. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't think about that, but I bet that communications piece around like businesses being able to calculate what they've diverted from landfill probably makes a big difference. Absolutely, especially for a large company with many locations across Canada, for example, they're able to track, you know, as a whole, what they're doing and then by store and also are able to kind of use those metrics for their corporate social responsibility goals that a lot of organizations are, if they haven't already, are starting to set uh, going forward. Madison, what you've built is incredible. You must be really proud of yourself. I mean, there's, there's, I have a huge, there's a huge team at Second Harvest, but yes, I think what we've been able to to accomplish as as a charity, you know, the the app itself isn't revenue generating. You know, it's free for the business and it's free for the charity or nonprofit, and we just fundraise and and hustle and and keep it going. And uh, a lot of hard work has gone into it, but I think it's it's really great that we've we're able to support businesses making that local connection and and you know making sure that food goes to someone and then help the charities and nonprofits hopefully offset the cost of when they would have to be either buying that food or maybe they just don't have the budget and they would have just had to not have it at all. Um, and this is particularly the case for organizations that run programming where they want to offer food, uh, you know, such as mental health supports or, you know, after school programs where, you know, food is is a really great way to have to encourage people to come, but also to just ensure that people can participate in the programming because they've had this, you know, snack or good meal. Uh, and often those organizations don't have the budget to be buying food, especially now with the rising, you know, costs and the increased number of people uh, accessing programming, you know, as a result of many of the impacts of the pandemic. So if we can help offset that and then let them spend that money if they have it on something else or, you know, not have to avoid giving out or not have to avoid having the food, then that's great. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about those organizations that, um, that receive food uh, from Second Harvest or through the app. I think one of your reports had called them the Invisible Food Network, <laughs> which I think is cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a great, great plug. We, we just released a report, it'd be about a month ago now, uh, called the Invisible Food Network. And it's actually something we had almost concluded by the time COVID had started. But then we delayed because we wanted to include a little bit of a, a COVID focus at the end of it, since so much was impacted, obviously, and you can't really avoid uh, talking about it. But the point of the report was to sort of look at where are Canadians accessing food if they're going to a food program. And this speaks again to sort of the general public's idea that, first of all, not having an understanding of how many people are accessing those programs, but also thinking that the only place that people go to get food are food banks. And absolutely, you know, people do do that. But there's also so many different organizations across Canada that serve food that people don't think of, whether it's, you know, faith-based or schools or even these mental health programs, obviously shelters and all of these different places. And so our report found that 
6.7 million Canadians rely on food from charitable organizations. So that's almost 20% of the population. And there are 61,000 nonprofits providing food, which is four times more, more charity programs than grocery stores. And so that's sort of why we titled that the Invisible Food Network. And it really speaks to, first of all, some of the issues we have here in Canada around, you know, having in- an income that you're able to purchase food and also speaks to constraints that these charities or nonprofits are working under. Uh, you know, they're operating a lot of that without, you know, there being necessarily uh, enough support or infrastructure to do that. So that's kind of our new report, just sort of highlighting some of that and some of the challenges that they're facing. And in relation to COVID, we actually found that a lot of charities and nonprofits said that, of course, the number of people accessing their services went up. But there was also this influx of support during especially that first year of the pandemic, where a lot of you know, foundations, corporations, the public stepped up to make, whether it was monetary donations or food donations in this sort of time of need. But where they're kind of most concerned is this time period where we're kind of, I mean, the pandemic's not over, but we're sort of moving uh, out of that that kind of first, first sort of year. And, you know, what's going to happen when all that support doesn't necessarily continue, but they still have people accessing at that increased need and they still have all of these costs. And then now they even have higher, you know, food costs that are coming uh, here in Canada. So that was sort of what that re- report was highlighting. Yeah, I, I, when I when I read that there were so many more charities than uh, grocery stores, that blew my mind. <laughs> it's just one of those things that you don't think about, but uh, I found that really interesting. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about safety and um, how what you sort of think about in terms of safety for food rescue. Sure, absolutely. So we do a lot of work around food safety with our charitable and nonprofit network. And we also do it, we do some of that education as well with our food businesses that are joining the platform. So for example, we have a best before uh, timetable that we we designed in conjunction with public health that goes over, you know, all the different categories of food and when you can donate by and when you can consume by, because we are always doing this education piece that best before doesn't mean bad after. And those dates are set by manufacturers and not, you know, government regulated, if you will. And so we sort of work around that piece. And then we also offer discounts and codes to do safe food handling for our charities and nonprofits, uh, as well as we have resources and quick videos and different things to kind of help them with that. And one of the biggest things that provides sort of ease of mind, if you will, for the food businesses is that when a charity or nonprofit signs up on the app, they fill in, you know, a simple application about their address and all their details. And then they also agree to our terms and conditions that we have in the platform. And then my team, say, for example, in Ontario, would have a quick call with them, make sure, you know, they have a charitable nonprofit number that they, you know, understand how the platform works, they operate a food program. And then in those terms and conditions, we outline, you know, that you're agreeing that you're going to safely transport the food, you're going to safely store it, you're going to hand it out in a way that's, you know, ethical and and within the guidelines of your program. You're not going to sell the food at cost, all these different things. And that just because we have that infrastructure built across the country with the app being available everywhere, it kind of eases the minds of the business that we've kind of handled some of those pieces. And especially for those large chains that operate everywhere, they can kind of find this one model that 
they can encourage all their stores to participate in and know that we have those kind of checks and balances sort of already built into place. Yeah, so it's about like reducing the risk as much as possible for businesses doing the right thing and sharing their food. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And also just helping our charities and nonprofits you know exactly what they should be doing because they are working with a lot of different staff and volunteers and Sometimes it's just about making sure everyone has all the information they need to to be successful and and participate, and that's where our team kind of helps helps do that. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could give um, some examples of like the kinds of food that wouldn't be counted as safe. Like how would um how do businesses decide what is able to be rescued and what can't? Sure. So they they usually use use our guides and kind of talk with our team if they're not sure. But it really depends where you are in the supply chain and the type of food that you're you're using. So, you know, we always recommend to businesses wherever possible to freeze food and keep it in the freezer because that just prolongs the life of it and makes it easier for the charity or nonprofit to use that product. Of course, you can't freeze everything, but but when you're able to, in some ways, one of the more challenging parts of the supply chain is events and catering and things like that, because it's a lot of prepared food that often is, you know, served in some capacity. So we just try to help uh, businesses think ahead and plan around when they're going to have an event, for example, or they're going to be catering, let's say like a hotel event that's going to have, you know, trays of different food. We just advise them that if you just put out a bit at first and then leave the other trays in your fridge, then you can kind of see how, how, you know, maybe you need to use all your trays, but maybe you don't. And all the trays that haven't been served where the public hasn't either been served it or touched it in some capacity if they stayed in the fridge, then those can be donated. And so it's just really a mindset shift around planning, around setting yourself up so that if there is extra at the end, you're able to donate that. And so it's just kind of working with them to, to kind of figure out those pieces. And then if they're, you know, for example, a grocery store, we give them that best before timetable and they kind of work through the different uh, departments that they have and see what they can can rescue and then hopefully put it in the fridge or freezer. And then that gives the charity or nonprofit a little bit more time to to pick it up. It's always a bit of an issue that, you know, certain parts of the supply chain are going to have constraints. Like when it comes to events and things, they often don't have a lot of storage and it's happening on a certain day and they need it picked up on the same day. So we just do the best that we can to try to help them. For example, sometimes events will know they have an event on Friday and they actually post the rescue ahead of time. And they just say, we think we're going to have about 40 pounds. And then the charity or nonprofit claims that ahead of time, they're ready, they know where to go. And then maybe it ends up being 50 or a little bit more. And the charity or nonprofit can always complete afterwards saying we got extra essentially. Uh, but at least it gives everyone a heads up to kind of get ready as opposed to, you know, the event happens and then you're kind of scrambling to try to figure out, can you donate anything and did you keep anything in the fridge and all of that stuff. So we just try to help businesses get set up for success. I'm curious about sort of like the mix of businesses that are participating. Is it mostly grocery stores? Is it sort of like a mix of restaurants? Um, what are what are sort of the biggest categories and the smaller categories? Sure. Yeah. It kind of really depends on on the location. And I would say that prior to the pan- pandemic, we we had obviously more restaurants participating. But obviously, that industry had pretty much a pause for that whole first part of the pandemic, unfortunately. So it kind of depends on where you are. But we do have, I would say, 
the main participants on the platform are the kind of smaller organizations like grocery stores, you know, quick service restaurants, uh, bakeries, cafes, those type of things. But we do have the platform built in a way that larger businesses that would have, like, let's say a distribution center that would have pallets, so skids of product. There's also features in the app that let them participate. And we do have charities and nonprofits that are larger who have a truck, for example, and can can match there. But it sort of just depends on where you are. And some of our growth over the last sort of two years, if you will, has come from some of these national partnerships. Uh, Sobeys announced in May that they, by the end of their last quarter, which I think is spring 2022, they will pretty much have all of their banner stores across Canada using the app. So, you know, things like that kind of help bring businesses participating in a bunch of different areas. So small towns, you know, across all of the provinces, uh, you know, a lot of them have one at least of those banners, whether it's Sobeys or uh, Safeway or those different ones. So that really helps kind of ensure that there's kind of activity happening there. And it also is great because, you know, grocery stores have these different departments and they can really provide a lot of different items that those local charities or nonprofits uh, would definitely need and, and make that local connection. Yeah, I'm curious about sort of on the other side of the the coin, what are some of the foods that are most needed by those food serving charities? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it really depends on the type of program that they're offering. And so that's why we really like, we encourage all types of businesses to register and charities and nonprofits because the platform's really set up as sort of an opt-in model, if you will. So the way it works is when a business posts a donation, notifications go out to nearby charities and nonprofits, but there's no commitment from the charity and nonprofit to claim a certain number of rescues. So I always, you know, advise them, you have to think about what is your, how does your program operate and what are you, what's really going to be useful to you? So for example, you know, if we have businesses that have prepared food, like for example, you know, some sort of catering, a lot of charities or nonprofits that serve seniors, for example, or who have limited capacity, they don't have a big kitchen, but they have like an oven, they could heat something up. Then those kind of donations are, are really great for them. You know, prepared food's easy. You can serve it. If you're operating a hamper program, then often a grocery store donation will be a good fit because you're kind of looking for a range of categories like produce, milk, uh, bread, in order to be able to build that hamper. So that's the kind of puzzle and matchmaking happening on the platform is, is it's always great to have a range of businesses and then the range of charities and nonprofits because those types of programs are going to need different things. But overall, the top three you know, most desired categories are usually dairy, produce, and protein because they are expensive uh, and they also are, you know, nutrient dense and can help either you prepare and serve a balanced meal or hopefully whoever's receiving that hamper, you know, get those key kind of nutritional categories that you need. I'm wondering whether either yourself personally or Second Harvest as an organization has like a view on food waste legislation. Uh, I'm thinking of, like in France, where grocery stores are fined if they destroy food. I wouldn't say we necessarily have a a position per se, but I will say that from doing our research on the avoidable crisis of food waste, we were connected to a lot of different businesses and found out what's the situation right now, what are some of the challenges, and what are kind of some of the solutions. And I would say that our system in Canada that we have this provincial system where sort of each province has a a lot of autonomy over sort of how they regulate things definitely makes it a bit more challenging to institute something like that than it would 
than it would be in France. And the other issue is that there isn't uh, organic composting happening everywhere. So part of the problem, uh, even if we would introduce something that said, you cannot throw food in the garbage, so it can't go to landfill, there would be a lot of areas in Canada where that uh, organic waste collection is not existing right now. Yeah, so that's one of the things that is a is a challenge, uh, depending on sort of where you're located. We also, you know, don't really, we don't require private businesses to report on food waste. We don't make them report on how much food they're wasting each year. That's part of the reason why the research here, the data was kind of missing. And, and even through our research, we were able to collect that, but it was aggregate, meaning we talked about each part of the supply chain. So whether it's farms or, or manufacturers or grocery stores, but we weren't saying this specific grocery store is doing this. Obviously, if any of them want to publicly say that they're accomplishing something that's great, they can, but no one's requiring them to do that. And no one's requiring them to send their food uh, to organics, at least not in, in Ontario. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of challenges there uh, before we would really be able to implement something like that. Right. So maybe that reporting could be the first step and, uh, <laughs> and let's get organics more places, <laughs> composting more places. Absolutely. I mean, part of the problem is it's really hard to know how big the problem is or even to know what is the specific challenge if you don't know how large the problem is. And so that's kind of where that that measurement piece comes. And there is a certain amount of accountability with the public. But so if, if you think, for example, there have been news stories where somebody opened a dumpster of a grocery store and saw all this food in it, and that was like on marketplace or something. And, you know, the public hears about that. But there's a lot of other parts of the supply chain that the public has no insight into. And there's food waste happening there. And so, you know, I think there's not a lot of accountability there. Obviously, if a business is, you know, has a strong position around social responsibility or, or climate change, they may be outwardly sharing that anyways, but it's by no means a requirement that they have to do that. Can you think of like a common myth that you have to sort of bust when you're engaging with organizations uh, that might be interested in donating food, but aren't really sure about it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've touched on this a little bit, but the two kind of most common ones we get are, uh, I can't donate because I could get sued. And then they give an example, but the example is usually quite vague. So it's, I know there was a business in town that got sued, but in Ontario, there's no prior instances of this. And we do have this donation act. And I don't think that comes from a place of not wanting to necessarily participate. I think that's just kind of, as you said, a a myth, if you will, that's that's explained. And also the point of the platform and our team is to try to connect with those businesses and assure them of those different things. So it may just be something they're not familiar with and a bit hesitant about. And then the other piece is the best before issue, which is that it comes from both sides, actually it comes from three sides, if you will, the businesses, the charities and nonprofits and the public, which is this belief that best before dates mean you can't you know, consume something afterwards. And more than that, that there's I hear often from people that public health says they can't. And of course, the way we're structured pretty much in every province in Canada is that there's local health authorities that, you know, kind of have autonomy over that area. So there is variety in in some parts of food safety. But overall, you know, we worked really hard uh, on this best before timetable and have consulted with a lot of public health 
authorities and you you can donate uh, food past the best before, the main key piece is that it needs to be stored correctly. So for example, if you had your yogurt just sitting out at a grocery store or something, you couldn't donate it. It would have to have been in the fridge. And then for the charities and nonprofits, similarly, they, you know, there's a lot of misinformation there around the best befores. And especially for a lot of the charities and nonprofits, if they operate a forward facing program. So for example, they put together a hamper and they hand that out every Wednesday. The public is equally as confused by this topic. And so when they see the hamper, the best before date is tomorrow, they're going to say, I don't want to take this yogurt because I don't want to get sick and I don't want to have to throw it out. When really, if it has stayed in the fridge the whole time, you know, it's safe to consume after that. It's really more of a check that it's been stored correctly, check it's not open, and then use your, once you do open it at home, you know, using that smell test. So that's kind of something that we're always just working to educate kind of everyone involved around around that, um, because there's a ton of food that gets thrown out, whether it's, you know, all along the supply chain or also just in the home because people believe that that date means bad after. I'm wondering if there's like a moment uh, that you can think of since you started working with Second Harvest uh, that it particularly stands in your mind, either because it was sort of the most surprising or the most rewarding or something like that. Uh, Is there like a standout moment for you? I mean, I think when we did this, I was the project lead on the Avoidable Crisis of Food Waste Report. And I think being able to be involved in that. And there was a lot of media coverage around it. And it really sparked a conversation about food waste in Canada. I think I was really excited and proud that we had done that research because I just think, although I know everyone knows there's lots of food waste, I think we've all experienced it in some capacity. It's still just to have this kind of easily accessible report that other people can reference, I think, I think is important. And we, we receive tons of amazing testimonials from our charities and nonprofits, just about all the things that they're doing. Um, And, you know, they've had a particularly challenging past two years, if you will, you know, the scare of, of just the health implications of the pandemic, the increased number of people they're serving, just so many different things that are happening for them. So when they're able to share, you know, all the amazing things that they've done with the food and, you know, send us pictures and stories and everything that really just resonates that, you know, the mission that we have, it's, you know, environmental and it's hopefully, you know, economical for the business, but it's also that kind of social piece where you're kind of connecting uh, with a local charity nonprofit that's, that's doing all of this really great work to, to serve the community. That's so awesome. <laughs> Kyla, I'm going to get into some wrap up questions, but I just want to make sure you don't have questions uh, first. <laughs> I actually did have a question. It goes back to near the beginning when, Madison, you were talking about the reasons that companies might be hesitant to don- to donate. And you were saying that you, you have to ensure that the, the charities that are receiving this food aren't selling it at cost. And it made me think of the, the fashion industry and how so many so many clothing items are thrown away because brands don't want their stuff being sold for a lower price. And I wasn't sure if I understood what you were saying. So I, w- I just was wondering, is that like an actual issue in the food industry where people don't want their brands being sold after? Or is it just it comes back to that they don't want to be sued for exchanging money for something that's close to its best before date? It, generally, it's more around that they want to like the reason that they're participating for a lot of the businesses, especially I mean, it, it depends. Truthfully, a lot of 
businesses come to the platform for a variety of different reasons. They may, you know, want that environmental impact. They may be more looking for that social kind of local connection, but generally they're donating it under the premise that it's going to a charity or nonprofit and they're using it in a food program. So that's why our terms and conditions are sort of written that way. And it's not, it's just to say that, you know, the whole purpose is that it goes to a charity or nonprofit and they give it out in some capacity, whether that's serving a meal or giving out a hamper, but it's not, uh, you were both maybe aware of the, I think it's flash food, the, the one at, that is in some of the Loblaws locations where it's like when food is kind of getting close, uh, whether it's to date or to going bad, they, they mark it down and users who use that app can purchase it. And that's kind of a model where it's very much involved with the consumer. And it's all about kind of, you know, you can get a deal if you're going to be able to use that food right away sort of thing. But this is very separate from that. We don't interact with the public directly. Everything through the platform is going to that charity or nonprofit. And I think that just kind of helps uh, encourage businesses to participate because they kind of want to have that that third pillar benefit, if you will, of the community support. So I don't know if that makes sense uh, as an explanation to that, but I will definitely say that both textile waste and food waste are a big issue. But I think that the perishability of food in some ways makes the issue take more of a spotlight in the public. And I think also means that there's sort of more urgency behind it and more kind of outrage, if you will. Um, Whereas I think the textile piece can be hidden a lot better. So I think food waste is still a big issue, but we we at least have that going for us when we're trying to, to make change. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for clarifying. I just, you, uh, you brushed past that in the beginning and I was like, wait, but why? <laughs> no, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, I live and, and breathe this, if you will. So I, if I made, if I brushed past anything, I, I'm glad you clarified it. No, not at all. I, everything you've said has made complete sense and I've learned so much. So thank you. Yeah. Kristen, if you have your last few questions, I'd be really curious to hear them. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious, um, for listeners that might be really interested in what Second Harvest does and really interested in reducing food waste. Uh, Do you have any suggestions for how they can get involved either with Second Harvest or more broadly with food rescue? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first of all, I would definitely encourage people to check out our website. It's just secondharvest.ca. You can see both of those reports that I mentioned under the research tab. And we do do a newsletter and I'd encourage, you know, people, the public to sign up for it because we share a lot about what we're doing as an organization, but also what we're doing around food waste. So if we're doing any research or we do do some public workshops, you know, around best before dates or how to reduce your food waste. And then I would say wherever you're located, if you think there's a business in your area that, you know, could benefit from using this or you're wondering if they know about it, please feel free to let them know and they can just direct them to our website and they can easily sign up. And similarly, if you think there's a charity or nonprofit that you think don't doesn't know about it, you know, the more we're able to spread the information, the more our team's able to help both sides kind of sign up and, and hopefully participate. And if they're already participating, then you just get to know about a local business that's, you know, you know, is, is working to reduce their food waste. And that's a nice thing, nice thing to know when you're, you know, thinking about who's in your community and, you know, knowing about the impact they might be having. Are there like any specific areas of Canada where you're especially hoping to sort of get the word out or um, we're not? <laughs> we are most established in Ontario because we started here, obviously, but we are now in every province, but our sort of most recent, if you will, moves have been uh, into the East Coast. 
So we are at every province, but we've probably been there the least amount of time, if you will. Um, so we're always, you know, looking to connect, of course, with more businesses and, and charities. And then we also have, through the pandemic as well, sort of started to connect with working on moving more food to the north. So whether that means northern, you know, northern parts of the province or all the way up to the territories, which is its own uh, set of uh, logistical challenges, but uh, something that's, of course, also very important to try to increase, you know, the the types of food that are, are available there and are something that people can access, not at a price that's not possible. So, but yeah, overall, we're just, you know, kind of always pretty much trying to get the word out there that that, that, that is available to any food business and, and any charity or nonprofit. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you, Madison. I really appreciated everything you said. I learned a lot more than I thought I would. I think you're the work that you and Second Harvest are doing is incredible. And if we could help you scale it up at all, everybody should do that. (laughs) Food waste is, well, we've talked about it a lot in our podcast. And it's just like, if we, it's like the number one thing everyone should be trying to, to fix, really. So for you to be working on this in such an amazing way is incredible. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about it today. Yes, thank you a thousand times. (laughs) No, thank you so much for having me. I had a really nice time uh, chatting about a topic that I'm very passionate about and and, uh, it it was great to connect with you both. Yeah, and we will put links to Second Harvest and the apps that you mentioned in the show notes and on our website so people can head there to find that stuff. If you guys want to connect with us on Twitter, we are at Pullback Podcast and we'll be following Second Harvest. I think you guys have a Twitter account too, hey? Yes, yes, we have a Twitter and and Instagram and Facebook. We're all, we're on all in all the places other than TikTok maybe, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> yes. And hopefully somebody much younger than me on our staff can can be involved in that. So <laughs> incredible. So we'll share all of that as well. And thank you to the listeners for joining us on this one. We'll catch you on the next episode.